Hey everybody, it's Jason. Welcome or welcome back to the Mosaic Church Podcast. At the end of this podcast, please take a moment to connect with us on social media. It's a great place to learn more and to see what's happening at Mosaic. Most importantly, hope the following message encourages and inspires you to take a new step on your faith journey. Enjoy. Well, good morning. It's good to see y'all. My name is Nick Jankowski. I serve as the associate pastor here at Mosaic Church. And on behalf of myself, on behalf of Pastor Jason, we are so excited that you've decided to join us on this first service of 2023, primarily because we are beginning a brand new teaching series called Genesis Stories from the Beginning. And the reason we're doing that, you might be wondering, with all that's going on in the world, why are we stopping to study the book of Genesis? Is because Genesis matters. Genesis matters because it is literally a book about beginnings. In fact, in the original Hebrew dialect, Genesis literally means beginnings. And when we look in the book of Genesis, we find the origin of our universe, We find the origin of man, the origin of evil, the origin of redemptive salvation, the origin of religions, and indeed, even the origin of God's chosen people, Israel. And so as we look at each of these different foundational truths in the book of Genesis over the next couple of weeks, we do so because knowing these foundational truths helps to build a firm foundation for our faith. That as the winds of culture blow different directions, if we have that firm root in our truth, our faith is less likely to topple over. And so I invite you over these next couple weeks to join us as we journey through the book of Genesis, as we explore these different foundational truths that are so important and critical to our faith journey today. But before we jump in to our study this morning, I want to invite you to pause briefly with me and let us go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. Lord, we thank you for new wine in a new year. Lord, for the things that you have done and the things that you will do in our lives in the world, Father, we stand with great anticipation. Lord, we ask you now, though, to be in this place as we believe that you are. Lord, that your spirit would minister to our hearts and transform our lives that we may leave here differently today because we interacted with your word. We thank you for that and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, uh, before I begin this morning, I need to say that what I'm about to tell you might be considered a bit of a spoiler warning, especially for young children. So if you are a young kid, like the one who is running through the back door right now, you may want to leave. If you are a parent of a young child that's in here today, or if you are listening to me currently on podcast and you have little kids in the room, now would be an appropriate time to cover their ears or to escort them somewhere else. I will pause. I'm serious about this. I will pause for just a moment to give parents the opportunity to do that. I don't see any other little kids in here, okay? All right, you've been warned. Here's my disclaimer. Santa Claus isn't real. I know, it's shocking, right? It is totally shocking. And I just want you to remember for a moment back to your childhood when you first discovered that horrible truth. Do you remember? I sure do. I sure do, because I was what you might call a little bit of a 
late bloomer, I guess you could say, because most children have an awareness of the myth of Santa Claus somewhere probably between first and third grade. But I was not like most children. I clung to my belief of the jolly fat man well in to my sixth grade year. And when I say clung, I mean I literally held to my belief with an almost religious fervor. In fact, so staunch was my belief in Santa Claus that my mother still regales our family of the story of the time that she walked into my room when I was in elementary school to find me seated on the edge of my bed, my hands clasped, my eyes closed, and repeating the mantra over and over again, I still believe in Santa. I still believe in Santa. If you haven't guessed or you haven't heard me say it before, I was a weird little kid. And of course, as an adult, my perspective has thankfully shifted. I now celebrate the myth or the spirit of Santa Claus during the holiday season as opposed to a literal or factual St. Nicholas. And in truth, as I got older, my sense of magic and imagination gave way to notions of adult logic and practicality. In other words, my maturation had necessitated the nullification of the relevance of a factual Santa Claus. Because regardless of what Christmas movies may tell you, a 43-year-old man who believes in Santa Claus is neither cute nor inspiring. It's just kind of creepy and weird. And so why do I bring all of that up? I say that this morning because I find an interesting parallel, specifically between the transformation of my belief in Santa Claus and a parallel between the belief of my transformation of the stories we find in the book of Genesis. Specifically for our discussion today, the creation account that we find in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. So let me explain just a little bit what I mean when I say that. I grew up in the church. I was raised in the church, and so it was not uncommon to be taught about the creation narrative in Sunday school. I can still remember and picture in my mind like the colorful cartoons of Adam and Eve gleefully strolling through the Garden of Eden with their nakedness neatly covered by perfectly placed foliage and thus animals frolicking all around them. I heard stories about how God had created the universe in just six days and how evil entered the world through a snake and some fruit. And just like Santa Claus, I believed that the creation narrative was the literal truth. In my young mind, there was no difference between believing in literal flying reindeer and believing in an invisible God who spoke the universe into existence. However, however, as I got older, my perspective began to shift. Not only as with regards to the existence of Santa Claus, but also with regards to my understanding of the credibility of the Bible's creation account. When I was introduced to Charles Darwin's Origin of the Species, or as I began to understand different cosmological arguments for the creation of the universe, like the Big Bang Theory, it dealt some serious blows to my Sunday school understanding of creation. Much the same way that the realization that my parents' handwriting and Santa's handwriting were exactly the same. I couldn't make sense of that. And slowly what I found is that my faith 
in the creation narrative began to give way and slowly began to be eroded by more human logic and reason. And much of the stories that I found in the book of Genesis kind of faded into the stuff of myth and legend. In my mind, it was a fable that was almost best reserved for those people who were too ignorant or too young to accept the reliability of more modern scientific discovery. Oh God, God, how I was wrong. God, forgive me for my arrogance. If only I had realized the height of my arrogance as a young man. If only I had realized the depth of my foolishness for questioning the authority of God's word. I might have saved myself from uh, the disastrous consequences that naturally unfolded before me because I believed at the ripe old age of 21, 22, that somehow I was smarter than the creator of the universe. And such is the zeal of youth. And so consequently, for a long period of time in my life, the biblical narrative had all the novelty of an antique in that it was something that was cool to look at every once in a while, but it had very little relevance for my life today. And so much like my adult perspective of Santa Claus, I sought to celebrate the allegorical allegorical truths of the Genesis narrative rather than beholden to literal interpretation of the events therein. The bottom line, if I'm honest with you this morning, is that I nullified the relevance of what Genesis had to say for my life today. Now, I recognize that my story is unique and that there will be those here this morning that can understand my journey and there are those here this morning who cannot and that is okay. Not everybody was a weird kid like I was. But the truth is, I think if there is one thing, I believe there's one thing that we can probably come together and agree on regarding the book of Genesis. I believe that most of us can come to a place of agreement that we have probably given little thought or consideration to the relevance of the creation narrative for our lives today in 2023. In other words, I would venture to assume that very few of us have ever wondered, if we've wondered at all, why Genesis 1 and 2 matters. And we arrive at these different positions of cognitive dissonance regarding the Genesis creation narrative for a variety of different reasons. Some of us arrive at these positions because we look at the contrary or seemingly contrary scientific evidence and it nullifies the meaning of Genesis in our lives. For others of us, we might wrestle or doubt with the teaching of biblical inerrancy, the idea that the Bible is without fault or without error, and so it neuters the transformational power of Genesis in our lives. Still others might wrestle with the uh, bridging the gap between the reality of our modern world and some of the more fantastical elements of the creation narrative. Whatever the reason we all have either consciously, I believe, or subconsciously perhaps, taken the early chapters of Genesis and placed that in our philosophical junk drawers. And what I mean by that is it's something that we haven't necessarily thrown out, but it's also something that we don't necessarily remember is there as well. And so the problem with this is simple when you begin to look at Scripture. The difficulty 
with this approach is that the creation narrative is not just limited to the book of Genesis. The creation narrative is not just limited to the pages of Genesis. In fact, references to God's supernatural act of creation are littered throughout the pages of the entirety of Scripture. From Old Testament to New Testament, we find reference to God as Creator. For example, in Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 17, the prophet declares this. He says, Ah, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. And so here we see the prophet Jeremiah professing his trust in the faith of God based on God's creative acts in Genesis. But it doesn't stop there. In the book of Hebrews, we see it is written that the author states that by faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command. So that what is seen was made out of what, what was seen was made out of what was not visible. I totally butchered that, I'm sorry. So that what was seen was not made out of what was visible. And so here again in the book of Hebrews, the author, presumably it's the Apostle Paul, is espousing upon the idea of the Christian doctrine of creation ex nihilo. It's this idea that the universe was created out of nothing, that God created the material universe out of nothing. And furthermore, if you go into the Gospels and you begin to examine the words of Jesus, you begin to see that there are actually ten specific references that Jesus makes in the Gospels to the act of creation. Over and over again, as you turn through the pages of the Bible, you see the Bible discusses God as the creator of the universe. It's woven throughout the entirety of Scripture. And so if we take into consideration these verses about creation that are outside the book of Genesis, the problem becomes clear. Because it may be very easy for us to disregard the relevance of the biblical creation narrative by simply discounting the early chapters in Genesis. However, our task becomes much more difficult when we have to begin to parcel through the entirety of Scripture to pick and choose which verses we like and which verses we don't. For example... Let's look at John chapter 1, verse 1 through 3. And John here is writing about Jesus. And look what he says about Jesus here. He says, In the beginning was the Word. And when he says Word, he's referring to Jesus. In the beginning was Jesus, or the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. And so based on John's words, we might rightly ascribe to Jesus the belief of his divine nature. But will we also with the same breath turn around and deny that Jesus had an important part to play in the creation of our universe as John clearly declares? Certainly not, church. Certainly not. At least not if we have a hope for a firm foundation on which our faith is to rest. Here's the challenge this morning to you, to me. Every believer, every believer must make a conscious determination on what to do with the Genesis creation narrative. Ignoring it is not a tenable option for us. 
And moreover, as we're about to see, how you choose to respond to God as creator of the cosmos has big implications for our lives today. As we're about to discover, Genesis does matter. And so I want to invite you to join me if you have your Bibles or your Bible apps. We're going to open to Genesis chapter 1. And the good news is if you're new to Bible reading, this is a great Sunday to have started to uh, read your Bibles because all you have to do to find the passage that we're starting with is literally open the cover of your Bible. And voila, you're in Genesis chapter 1. And so let's explore together this thought. Here's the thought that I want us to begin to process through. What we see in creation, or what we choose to see in creation, chooses what we see in the Creator. What we see in creation chooses what we see in the Creator. And so let's get into Genesis 1 here. The whole of the biblical creation narrative is summed up or written in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. However, for our purpose this morning, I'm going to focus on just a single verse that it summarizes the central theme of the entire text. In fact, it's the very first verse of the Bible, Genesis 1, 1. It says this, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's short, it's sweet, and it's directly to the point. And yet, despite its brevity, this verse is often beheld by many theologians, both Jewish and Protestant, to be among the most important, if not the most important, verse in the entirety of the Hebrew Bible. Why? Because in ten short words we find and are introduced to the character and nature of God. In ten short words, we are introduced to the character and nature of creation. In ten short words, humanity finds its meaning and purpose. Church, we could literally spend weeks upon weeks unpacking and mining the theological treasures found in Genesis 1. Unfortunately, or fortunately enough for you, I've only got about 20 minutes left. And so I'm going to focus on just one this morning. Genesis 1.1 makes this clear. God created this. God is the primary source or the originator of everything that exists in the material universe. Let me say that one more time. God is the primary source or the originator of everything in the universe. And amongst that idea, there can be no debate of that amongst believers. Scripture is in harmony and unity in, in this idea that God started it all. Period. And let me clarify this issue a little bit more for you. You cannot profess belief in the authority of Scripture, you cannot also profess belief in Christ Jesus as Savior and still maintain a belief or perspective that the world originated by natural means. You can't do it. The two, the two thoughts or the two beliefs are mutually exclusive. They're un, irreconcilably incompatible with one another. It would be the same as believing in a literal Santa Claus while at the same time believing that parents are Santa Claus. It doesn't make sense. You can't arrive at one um, with the other. 
And I'll demonstrate why in just a moment. But before I do so, I feel like I need to divert for just a moment to make an important distinction here. Because while Genesis 1-1 makes clear the fact that God started it all, in the beginning, God created. End of discussion. Amongst believers, there are a variety of different thoughts and opinions about how God arrived at how he created. For example, there is those in the faith who hold and love Jesus, I believe, to the idea of theistic evolution. This idea that God supernaturally guided the evolutionary process over the course of millions of years. Other examples might include the gap theory or the day-age theory. Now, personally speaking, this is me speaking, Nick Jonkowski, not the Lord. I hold to the literal interpretation of Genesis, of the creation account, meaning that I believe Genesis is exactly as it is written, that God miraculously and instantaneously spoke the universe into existence in six 24-hour days. And I've arrived at that conclusion of this literal explanation of the creation narrative after many hours of personal study because I believe that it offers the least path of resistance to other theological concepts. And I would love to get into that with you this morning. I don't have time, but if you want to discuss that, I'd be happy to. The point, however, is not that I'm right and other people are wrong, though I am right. (laughs) The point is that no matter what means you use to arrive at your understanding of Genesis 1-1, in your final conclusion, it must include God as the source or the originator of all things. In other words, we must always seek to behold the Creator and His creation. And any failure to do so is a disastrous impact on our faith and our lives. And as we're about to see, what we choose to see in creation chooses what we see in the Creator. So let me explain one side, the negative side of that, and then we'll look also at the positive too. And in order to do so, we're actually going to turn from Genesis forward into the New Testament, into the book of Romans. And so if you have your Bible, you can meet me there in Romans chapter 1. We're going to begin in verse 18 and 20. And it reads as follows. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since, we know, um, since what we know about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible qualities, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. And so the Apostle Paul here in writing his letter to the Romans is giving us a sober reminder that God is not only the creator of the universe, but he is also the righteous judge of the universe. And the usual suspects that are associated with God's wrath are all present and accounted for here in Paul's writing. He specifically names wickedness and godlessness. And Paul attributes this kind of malevolent human behavior to the suppression of a truth. And this truth, Paul says, catch this, this is important. Paul says that this truth is evident and available to all who look for it. And so if I'm reading Romans chapter 1, which I did this week, I'm asking the Apostle Paul, all right, 
What is that truth that people suppress that is evident and available to everyone who looks? And Paul discloses that to his readers. He says that God has chosen to reveal his attributes about himself, especially his divine power and his divine nature through creation. More to the point, God has hard-baked into the material world undeniable proof of his existence as the creator of the universe. And what's more, as Paul says, that these truths and these proofs of God's existence are plain to see for all who look for them. And what Paul is referring to here in the book of Romans is something that you may or may not have heard of. It's referred to in theological circles as general or natural revelation of God. And general revelation sounds like this big word, but it's really fairly simple. It means this, that it's the idea that God has made himself known in the observable design and majesty of our physical creation. And so as we observe the grandeur and the power of the world around us, Paul says that it quietly shouts back at us, there is a God. He is eternal. He is infinite. He is all-powerful. He is all-knowing, transcendent, and the primary source of all things. Think of it this way. Who of us sitting here, myself included, has not at one time in our lives stood in a place be it in front of the power of the ocean, in front of the majesty of the mountains, the beauty of a field of lilies, or looked at the miraculous in the birth of a child and not whispered to ourselves, there must be a God. There must be a God. That is what Paul is talking about here. And nonetheless, despite that, despite the clear evidence to the contrary, the, the divine evidence to the contrary, Paul says that there are those who will choose to suppress the plain and observable revealed truths of God in creation. And so what does Paul mean by that? If natural revelation speaks to the existence of God, then the denial or suppression of that shouts back, there is no God. It's the evolutionist who stands at the foot of nature and looks at all that is created and says, this happened only by chance or by random process. That is the suppression of the truth. And so I think, church, it's important this morning that we pause for just a moment. And I want to ask a question because I think it's important that we consider of ourselves what echoes through our heart, what praises may ring in our mind, when we survey creation? What do you hear and see when you look at creation? Because more to the point, creation will either draw you closer to the creator or it will push you farther away from him. And this is why Genesis matters. This is why the biblical account matters. As we're about to see again, what we choose to see in creation chooses what we see in the creator. So let's pick up again Paul's writing in the book of Romans. He says, beginning in verse 21, For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and foolish and their hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. 
And so Paul is making the point that how we understand the material world, now catch this because this is important, how we understand the material world affects the trajectory of our worship. How we understand the material world affects the trajectory of our worship. How you choose to respond to God's general revelation moves you in either one of two directions. There is no neutrality of soul when it comes to the origin of the universe. You cannot be Switzerland. I'm sorry. Creation either moves us in a desirable direction, which we'll cover in just a second, or it moves us in a direction that is ultimately detrimental to the well-being of our souls. And Paul refers to this negative movement as the darkening of our hearts, primarily because we either worship the Creator or we worship the creation. Human beings are hardwired. In fact, it is a proof of the divine. Human beings are hardwired to worship something. We all worship something. Whether you say so or not, we all worship at the foot of something in this life. And in our worldview, if we reject the existence of God, we will worship that which is not God. And Paul says, specifically, idols. And in Paul's day, those idols took the form of statues, of lizards, of birds, of other mortal men. And we don't necessarily have that in our culture today, but that does not mean that we still don't worship at the feet of other things. We worship ourselves. We worship at the feet of politics. We worship sex. We worship influencers. We worship all manner of false gods. We become fools even though we esteem ourselves to be wiser than the creator of the universe. And so church, if there is a downward descent, an almost de-evolution of our mind when we reject God as creator, there also exists an upward ascent whereby creation moves us closer to God. And not only in the sense that we are led to worship God as we see him revealed in nature around us and his power and his nature But Paul also says this, that there is a greater revelation still that hangs in the balance on the the creation account. And in order to explore this awesome revelation, we need to look at another book in the Bible that's also Paul's writing in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. And so you can also turn there with me. We'll also have it on the screen behind me. But the Apostle Paul writes this. He says, For God who said... Let light shine out of the darkness, made his light shine in the hearts to give us the knowledge of God's glory, displayed in the face of Christ. And so let me just break this down for you for a second here. uh, Paul in this verse is actually paraphrasing God who said, let light shine out of the darkness. And so let's stop there for just a moment and ask the question, what is it that Paul is referring to in this moment? He's referring to creation, the creation account in Genesis where God literally said, let there be light. And so Paul sees in the original creation of light a picture or an analogy of the light of salvation. And so let me show you what he's seeing here. In Genesis 1.1, it says, God created the heavens and the earth. 
But the verse 2 in the same passage, the immediately corresponding verse says this, Now in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and now the earth was formless and empty, darkness over the surface of the deep. Paul says that, Genesis says that it was formless, that it was lifeless, that it was empty, that it was uh, a devoid of light, that it was a void of darkness until God spoke into it and said, let there be light. And Paul says in the same way, it is God who shines the light of salvation in the darkness, in the primeval hearts of men, that we might receive the salvation of Christ. God creating light in the midst of darkness by his word and power is a picture of what he does in the sinner's heart. And so think about this for a second. When we tamper with the biblical narrative, when we deny or reject the biblical narrative of creation, we're also tampering with or denying the parallel of salvation that God has hard-baked in there. And so let that sink in for just a moment. Creation not only reveals the character and nature of our God, but it also whispers to us of the miraculous salvation we receive through Christ Jesus. The light of creation has become the light of salvation. The light placed in the heavens has become the light that's placed in the hearts of men. The light which was material has become moral. The light which is the physical light which shines in the darkness has become the spiritual light which shines in the darkness. The universal light has become the personal light of God. And again, this is why the creation narrative matters. I like how the American preacher Jonathan Edwards summarized this thought. He said on the subject, the glory of redemption is tucked into the testimony of creation. The glory of redemption is tucked into the testimony of creation. In Genesis, we not only encounter the power of our God, but we bear witness to the light of our Savior as well. And so once again, we're brought face to face with the undeniable truth that what you choose to see in creation chooses what you see in the Creator. And so I ask you this morning, church, what do you see when you step out the doors of this building What do you see and perceive when you walk in creation and see the nature around you? What does your heart say? Does it draw you closer to him or move you farther away? And perhaps just as importantly, what do you believe about the book of Genesis? Because how you answer that question, church, matters. Genesis is not a fairy tale. Genesis is not like Santa Claus. I'm sorry, Virginia. It doesn't matter. The Genesis tells us that God is real. The Bible tells us that God is real and that he made the heavens and the earth. Genesis tells us that he has thus revealed himself in his creation for all who look to find it. And Genesis tells us that God loved his creation so much that he sent his only son Jesus to die on a cross as an atonement and payment for our sins that we might receive the light of salvation in our lives. And so I ask again, what do you believe? What do you believe? And so the question we have to contend with this morning is this. Aside from how we might choose to safeguard the truth of Genesis 1 and 2 in our hearts, is how do we actually take what we've heard this morning and apply it to our lives? 
How do we walk out of here and take at least one thing that we've heard this morning and begin to apply it to our lives and the everyday stuff of life? I think the answer is simple as it is profound. If we take Paul at his word, at face value, and we accept the idea that God has indeed revealed himself through his creation, that as his children, we ought to be walking with eyes wide open in an attempt to see the miraculous even in the mundane. That means that every opportunity that we have to set foot out in creation, be it our backyard or our front yard, the ocean or the Rocky Mountains of Colorado, is an opportunity to witness and worship the divine. And so I ask again, what do you see? I like how Elizabeth Barrett Browning framed it this way. She said that the earth is crammed with heaven and every common bush aflame with God. But only those who see take off their shoes. The rest sit round and pluck at blackberries. The application is clear, church. We live in a day and an age, man, where we are rushed here and there. We're so consumed with the temporal that we oftentimes miss the eternal that's right outside of our door. If our eyes are open, every day is an opportunity to witness the natural revelation of God in creation. And look, I get it. It's, it's not easy. It's not easy. Especially in Wisconsin this time of year. It's not easy. It's cold. The days are short. It is not easy to look for God in creation. Every day, my wife and I go for a walk with the dogs. And every day that we go for a walk, if you were to join us, you'd more likely to hear cursing coming out of our mouths about the wind and the cold than you would the praises to God in the midst of it. However, I wonder. I wonder if as we walked, if instead of looking at the dead bushes that were along our path, our eyes were awake and alert to the possible burning bushes that might be there as well how our perspective might change, how praise might fill our voices more, and how might your perspective change if you chose to see the miraculous in the mundane. What you choose to see in creation chooses what you see in the Creator. Once again, thank you so much for listening. If you live in Southeast Wisconsin, we'd love to connect with you at our weekend gathering service time, directions, and to learn more about our vision to ignite a movement of love that transforms our community and the world, visit us at mosaicwi.com.